0: For this is Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter, the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham the portion, a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of the Righteous. And then he is also King of Salem, that is King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are the descendant from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him with blessed him who had the promises it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior in the one case tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case by one whom it is testified that he lives one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Mechizedek met him. This is the word of God.
1: What have we been learning through the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. More specifically, Jesus is greater than the angels... Or any other spiritual being, Jesus is greater than Moses or the law given through Moses to the people. And Jesus is greater than Aaron, the representative of the priesthood. Whatever troubles you may be going through in life, remember this, that Jesus is greater. He is our sure and steady anchor. Whenever you are tempted to turn away from the living God to try to find rest in something that doesn't last, remember, Jesus is greater. And if you are unsure of how to receive eternal salvation, and you think it's all about how great you are, remember this, Jesus is greater. You know that in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. That means I don't need to convince you of eternity, I just need to show you through God's word that you are a sinner, undeserving of eternal life, but that through faith in Jesus Christ, this amazing gift can be yours. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Well the book of Hebrews is all about our great Christ and this week we are in Hebrews chapter 7. It's a very it begins a very meaty section of the book a very important section it's close to the middle of the book and in what we're looking at today in these first 10 verses introduces a big air, a big section of the book of Hebrews a, t- a great topic about how Jesus is A greater high priest who is the mediator of a new and better covenant for God's people. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, the author of Hebrews informs his audience that he has a lot to tell them about Melchizedek. But then he goes on a slight detour, if you remember. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, He says, about this we have much to say. I have a lot to teach you about Melchizedek, but he doesn't go right into teaching about Melchizedek. He goes from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way over to the end of chapter 6 with this little aside, this teaching part, this warning that he gives to them, warning against spiritual apostasy and a warning against apathy, a warning for them to guard, you know, to watch themselves, this big warning that he gives to them, and then obviously he's writing or speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he goes on this rabbit trail and he doesn't get lost. He comes back. (laughs) You know, if it was me and I was trying to teach something, there's a good chance that I could be off the beaten path for a long time. I actually have a line drawn in my Bible from chapter 5, verse 11 to the beginning of chapter 7 because it's kind of this parenthetical direction that he took over the last, you know, we took like three sermons to go through that warning because of how important and instructive it is. But now he returns to the topic that he began there Remember, in chapter 5, verse 10, he said, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this we have a lot to tell you, but, and then he goes off on that rant, and then he comes back, and now what he's doing today, what we're looking at today is his return, his return to this topic that he's going to be delving into a lot deeper over the next few weeks. And this message today, these first 10 verses of chapter 7, is kind of an introduction to the topic at hand, and and my goal today is just to lay the foundation about the priesthood in general and the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek in particular, and then in my absence the next um, week, and then the following week, Phil is going to take the baton, and he's going to use two weeks to explain, unpack, and better apply chapter 7 more fully, but for today, the message is short and sweet. It's to the point that the big idea today is Melchizedek is great, but Jesus is greater, Melchizedek is great, but Jesus is greater. Now we've talked a little bit about Melchizedek because the author of Hebrews introduced him back in the middle of Hebrews chapter five. But let's be honest: how many of us really know Melchizedek very well? I'm sure that he's not your list of top ten favorite Old Testament characters. Me personally, I like Ab- you know I like um, Noah is one of my favorites, and Nehemiah and Ehud. I don't know if you know the story of Ehud great story to teach middle school kids you can look it up later if you want you know those are some of my favorite old testament bible characters but yours might be abraham or moses or david those are kind of the big guys you can't really tell the history the salvation history of god working with his people without you without talking about abraham moses and david honestly if not for the writer of hebrews Melchizedek might be one of those characters that you don't even know about you might not even know about Other than a reference in Psalms 110, the only other time that we hear about this person is in Genesis chapter 14. In Hebrews 5, the author quotes Psalms 110 in explaining Jesus' priestly role. And now in Hebrews chapter 7, he unpacks the great significance behind what it means that Jesus is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's kind of like this chapter is an expositional sermon of Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, the reason what he's doing this is to give us a better understanding of Christ's identity. In other words, to fully understand, to get a better grasp of who Jesus is, we must understand who Melchizedek is, this mysterious king-priest that's re- that's mentioned in Genesis 14. So I want to begin with the basics. What is a king? We all know what a king is, right? A king is the supreme ruler over a geographical area like a country. In the Bible, long before uh, the first king of Israel, Saul, in the 11th century BC, they were kings over people, and those tended to be city-states. So a city, it was walled off, one king ruling that city, that was a city-state in it of its own, and that was where a king ruled. A priest, on the other hand, was not a political or military position like a king, but it was a religious position. And every religion... Had it said a priest. Every religion. I was watching a documentary about Rome, and they talked about all these little different Roman gods. And the Roman gods, the bigger ones, tended to be in a building, and that was called a house of worship, because that was where the god, the idol, lived. And you didn't even go there, but there was always a, a, a keeper there. It was kind of a priest. There was it was this way in every religion, all throughout the ancient Near East, all throughout history. A priest was a person who you would go to in order to approach a God that you wanted to appease. I was trying to explain this concept to my son this, mor- the, this week. He's six, and he asked what a priest was. And so I was trying to think, how could, how could I better explain what a priest is? And I thought, well, how about this? Let's say that you have a gift you want to take to your principal at school. You couldn't just barge into her office anytime you felt like it, Right? She is a very busy, very important person in the school, the most important person in your school. So what would you do? You would have to give the gift to your teacher or to maybe the secretary. We know how important those are, right? And then that person would have to take that gift to the principal. In the same way, I said your teacher is kind of acting like a priest in that story in that she is the person who is the go-between between you and the principal, the most powerful person in your school. Well, Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, has way more authority than Miss man, your school principal. And God is totally different than us in his holiness, his perfection, and his power. And he is the one who has prescribed the way that we ought to approach him in worship. And he set up a system where people who are called priests can go to God on the behalf of the people. And in the Bible, God chose a man named Levi, one of the Jacob's 12 sons that became the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, he chose Levi and his descendants to always be the ones who had this job of the priesthood. That is why we call it the Levitical priesthood because it's from the order of Levi. When the Israelites had conquered the promised land, God prescribed a geographical region, an area that all of the 12 tribes got to share. So everyone was apportioned a section of land. Ten of them, it was one geographical land area, and then one of the 12 tribes, it was split into half, and they had an, like an east and a west. And then one of the tribes, though, they didn't get any land. The tribe of Levi, they did not get apportioned any land at all. What, the reason why is because instead of getting land, they had a specific job to do, work in the temple. They would handle all of the details and the, the logistics of temple life. And so they didn't get a land, they got a job. A subset of the Levites, those who were a descendant from Aaron, the brother of Moses, those are the ones who became the priest and did that work. But our passage introduces another priesthood that is not about Levi, it's not about the 12 tribes, it's not about God's directive, but another priesthood, and that is from the order, it says, of Melchizedek, who lived long before Levi and Aaron, And so this is pretty confusing, isn't it? Like, who is this person? How come he's before? How come he doesn't fit in with the system that God had set up for his people living in the land that God had promised them? Well, the author here, makes a very simple argument. There is another priestly order after a person called Melchizedek, which is greater than the priesthood of the Levites that God himself set up. And this matters because it says that Christ is after the order of Melchizedek at many times here in Hebrews. Not, Christ is not after the order of Levi. That means that Christ priesthood, what we're talking about, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So if you think about, okay, what priesthood do you need? Which would you want? You would want the better one, which is why he's talking about Christ one, which is after this Melchizedek one, because Melchizedek is great, but Jesus is greater. So let's learn about this shadowy figure named Melchizedek by going back to Genesis chapter 14, back to when he was known as Abram. Last week, I gave a brief history of Abram. He was given a promise that he would be the father of a great nation and that all the people of the world would be blessed through him. And after moving into the land of Canaan with his family and everything that he owned, his nephew Lot went one way and he went another way. Lot settled in a city Known as Sodom. Well, one day, a coalition of four Canaanite kings attacked and defeated five other kings, the city states of Sodom and his neighbors. And they carried off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's son Lot, or Abraham's nephew Lot, who's living in the city of Sodom. Well, somebody escaped and they came and they told Abram about this event that just took place and said, like, these four kings. Um, were, uh, you know, these were attacked by these five kings and, and there was a big battle and, you're, and then one side won, but nep- your nephew Lot got carried away. Well, Abram heard about this and he took 318 of his trained men of his own household and he took off in hot pursuit until he closed in on the kidnappers somewhere near Damascus. And there, under the cover of night, he took a small force in a surprise attack and defeated the four kings and he regained all of the lost property and all the people who had been taken, including his nephew Lot, which makes you think, don't mess with Abram. I mean, think about that. He went and attacked four people who had, or five kings who had just won this battle. And, and now he, um, just with 318 people, in the middle of the night, he did this stealth attack and he defeated them and got everything and every, everybody back, including his nephew Lot. And Abram... Um, who, he wasn't even in the battle, remember? He didn't get attacked. But yet, he did this to go save, kind of like the kinsman-redeemer uh, theme that you see later on in Scripture. He went and redeemed his son and fought and got him back, or his nephew. So Abram's returning home, and he's got all these men that he had with him. He's got all this, this the plunder, all of the people, all of the stuff. He recovered everything and that was lost by the five kings in battle. And then all of a sudden, you read about this interaction that he has with these two other kings in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 23. Let me read it for you. It says, After his return from the defeat of Kedolormer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went went with me let Anna Eshel and Memory take their share. So when you read this, first of all, who does that Sodom guy thinks he is? Right? He just got defeated in battle, and now he's trying to tell Abram what you ought to do. He said, "Give me the people, my people, you take everything else." He should just be thankful that Abram went and did all that for him, you know what I'm saying? Abram is the one who rescued all those people, and then what does Abraham say? Uh, you don't tell me what I do. I'm the one who won. Secondly, I'm not taking anything because you're going to turn around and be one of those people and says, well, look what I did for Abram. I let him keep all the, splendor that he, uh, all the plunder that he took. So Abram says, I'm not having none of that, first of all. I'm not taking anything except what my men ate along the way. And, then, and secondly, uh, I'm, you can have everything back. But you contrast the king of Sodom's attitude with Melchizedek, who's in this story who wasn't in the fight. First of all, he brings food to nourish Abram and his men. He brings bread and wine. And this phrase could symbolize a full meal. But when you read that, isn't it hard not to think about the Lord's Supper, about communion, the establishment that Jesus made at the last Passover meal that he had with his disciples, where he gave bread and wine? It says that the king of Salem, this Melchizedek, came out, and he brings bread and wine to them. And then immediately he offers a blessing to, the, to Abram and to God. And then he gives Abram a tenth. Um, I mean, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything that he had just won back. A, a t- that is not a small amount either. That is not a small amount of stuff. There was a lot of stuff that he had taken back because of the amount of, of people that were involved in all of this. And then that's it. You don't hear anything else about Melchizedek. We don't hear anything else for a thousand years. Not until King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing Psalms 110 about a king. Then in Psalms 110 verse 4, it says, speaking of, Psalms 110 is about uh, the reign of David and his descendants. But then all of a sudden, right there in the middle of Psalms 110, it says, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's what I think happened. The writer of Hebrews, being led by the Holy Spirit, is writing about how great Jesus is, explaining from history about Jesus, when all of a sudden everything clicked, and this light bulb goes off in his mind. And he remembers, because people had tried to come up with news stories about Melchizedek throughout Jewish history that aren't recorded in the Bible, but some people were like, did come up with kind of like random ideas, but then the writer of Hebrews remembers this story from Genesis 14, and the interaction of Melchizedek with a patriarch of Abram, and, this, and then he remembers the psalm, the song of David about King David and about his line, and then all of a sudden it all comes together with him, and you see He shows us this what some preachers have called the scarlet thread that traces throughout Scripture from Genesis to Psalms and now into Hebrews that the great king priest Jesus was foreshadowed by this mysterious man from history known as Melchizedek. That is what we see taking place. And so let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 7 and revisit this exposition of the story from Genesis 14 in Hebrews chapter 7 to learn about the significance of Melchizedek. You know, this story is also very shocking because a king could not be a priest. Even though a king had great political and military, sometimes ultimate authority over the area that they were ruling and the people that they ruled, they could not be a priest for God. I'm talking about Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. If they tried to force that, then... God would would, uh, deal severely with him. You might remember from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we know that chapter very well because it's the vision that uh, Isaiah had of the throne room of God. And it begins In the year King Hosea died, I saw the Lord high and seated on his throne in heaven. Well, in the year that, the reason why he emphasized in the year, that King Uzziah uh, um, Uzziah died is because King Uzziah died because he was trying to force himself as king to become a priest. And God, the Lord, struck him with leprosy and cut him off from his people. To emphasize, if you are a king, you cannot become a priest. That is not your role. That is not your job. And if you try to do that, God would deal severely with you. So we see it's shocking right there in Genesis 14 that this is what it says that this person is. In Hebrews chapter seven verse one, it says, "King for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God." So that is shocking—a person outside, who's not, you know, uh, not part of the people, the Israelite people, outside the kingdom of um, of the tribe of Israel. What an interesting character here! So first of all, we see how he foreshadows Christ's character through his title, because it says in verse one that he is. Um, a priest of the Most High God. He holds that dual office that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. In the ancient Near East, you had gods over different areas over with, with different powers. And very early in our story, we see that God identifies himself as God Most High or Most High God. And that's why we refer to Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because Jesus is the only other one who holds that dual office as well. There is no other God like him. Secondly, look at his name and his position. His name is Melchizedek. Now, in Hebrew, you can, act, you can see this very clearly that his name um, comes from two different Hebrew words. Melech is king and Sedek is righteousness. So it's literally king of righteousness. If you were to translate his name from hebrew into english it would be king of righteousness so it points to the fact that he is a righteous king and it says also that he was king of salem now that was the physical place where he was king a city known as salem or in hebrew shalom which means peace which later became the actual city of jerusalem so his name literally means king of righteousness and he was literally the ruler of a city known as peace. So he was king of righteousness, king of peace. It's also worth noting that in Isaiah chapter 9, when it's a, Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, that he will be the prince of peace who rules with righteousness. Thirdly, Melchizedek foreshadows Christ as the king priest because of his authority through his blessing. In Genesis chapter 14, he blesses Abram with the gift of, Of food, and he blesses him with a prayer and a blessing to God most high. And Melchizedek's blessing of the patriarch is critical because of the connection that the author of Hebrews finds between Melchizedek and Christ. Verse 7 of of chapter 7 of Hebrews teaches us that the greater one always blesses the lesser one. And the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the head of the old covenant, is astounding. Because he was showing that he was the greater one in that relationship. So through all these things, by comparing Melchizedek and Abraham in the story of Genesis chapter 14, we see how significant this often overlooked story is. And how the character of Melchizedek foreshadows Christ in so many ways. And so now I also want to show how Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ's qualifications, looking in verse 3. Now, Before I go on, I need to uh, have a little aside here myself and talk about what we're about to read here. And maybe, um, maybe you've already thought about this when you've heard the word read and you've heard the word preached so far. I've been talking with people about this recently, especially because I knew this was coming up. You see, what I'm talking about is there are times in the Bible when God, who is invisible, right? But there are times in the Bible when God appears in a way where He can be experienced by human senses. And this is what we call a theophany. Examples of a theophany would be when it says that the glory of the Lord appeared or the glory of the Lord appeared as a a pillar of fire or a cloud, a pillar of a cloud. Well, there are also times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, whenever God the Son makes an appearance in the form of a human before his incarnation. And that is what's called a Christophany. So we tend to use those phrases um, in both ways, a theophany or Christophany, but a theophany is just a form where you can visibly see God. A Christophany is what happens when God the Son appeared in the Old Testament before, before he actually was born as a baby, what we celebrate at Christmas, before, he was, before his incarnation. And a lot of times, I, we see this in the Old Testament. You might not have thought about this before, but every time you're reading the Old Testament and you see, like it says, the angel of the Lord... The angel of the Lord, especially when it talks about the angel of the Lord in one of these stories, and then and people bow down and worship it. Where do you see all the time in Scripture when somebody worships an angel, they say, stop, I'm a messenger, don't worship me, right? But there are times when an angel will, rec- well, it says the angel of the Lord, will, and it's a different phrase, it's not saying just a messenger, but the angel of the Lord will actually accept worship from somebody else. And that gives you a hint. There's other hints I could point you to where it looks like there's a form of a human, and we're not really sure who it is. And so maybe you've thought this already. You thought, you know, as we're reading Hebrews 7, and as we're reading about Melchizedek, it sure does sound like it's describing Jesus, doesn't it? Could this be an angel taking the form of a human being? Is it even possible that it was a pre-incarnation form of Jesus? Well, I will tell you. Yes, I believe that it is possible, but um, I no longer think that it's exactly what happened. I can't say definitively that is what happened. I'm not so certain that it is what happened anymore. I've been thinking it's it was actually a real person. I'll tell you why. Because first of all, what the argument that Hebrews chapter seven is making, the author is it's not important to the argument. It's not important to the argument. What the writer is doing is, is using a common rabbinical method of interpretation from silence. His point is that the Genesis account does not mention because of the parents or genealogy or when he born or when he died because some, um, showing that some of those qualifications are of the coming Christ. And then also in verse 3 at the end, it says that he resembles the Son of God. So he's, he's explaining this, his uh, genealogy and his life, saying that it resembles Christ. And the author, like I said, he's using an argument from silence saying, you see, remember that story that we all learned when we were kids? Look at how that reflects or foreshadows. It kind of, it's a shadow of what's coming, what's going to come in Jesus Christ. So first of all, like he says, he says, um, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, the text is pointing this out because their family tree meant everything to them. And genealogies are all over the first five books of the Old Testament. Like, there's no reason why he couldn't have talked about his genealogy, but the author of Genesis did not talk about his father or his mother or any of his children. I mean, you couldn't be a priest if you weren't from the line of Levi, but here we have a guy who is a priest, designated a priest, but not through Aaron or Levi. And while Jesus' bloodline, you remember he was from the tribe of, of Judah, he had no, Jesus had no priestly genealogy. He was the same way, in effect, without genealogy. The point is, is the, point, the reason why he's saying this is because Jesus, his priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is based solely on the call from God, not on hereditary. And they were both specially appointed as priests by God Most High. And it says that his priesthood had no beginning, and uh, no beginning of days nor end of life. Now, if you were a Levitical priest, you only served for 30 years. You would start, there's some accounts of, you would start when you were about 30, and then you would serve for about 30 years. There was always an end to it. And then, or maybe you died while you were a priest. There was still an end. If you died while you were a priest, you were no longer a priest anymore. So there was always an end to your office. What Hebrews is saying, Melchizedek, we don't know about his beginning. We don't know about his end in the same way Jesus Christ, is a foreshadow of Jesus and his eternal priesthood as well. That there is no end to Jesus' role as priest. And as I said, I was hoping to, to first establish the significance of Melchizedek. And this, let's look at his superiority now in the second half. I know we've already been talking about that as we've been going on, but look at verse 4. He says, see how great this man is? Like, look, your version of the Bible might say, look at how great he is. Let's ponder his greatness with just like, let me explain to you the fact of the giving of the tithes. The fact that, he, um, that, that Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek shows his greatness right there. Because um, in verse 5, our author describes the usual tithing system it Was this. The priest, it says, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So like I said earlier, people were commanded to give tithes to, to the Levitical priest, Because Levitical priests did not have a land of their own, they received a tithe or 10% of income from everybody who came to worship. Many Christians today have adopted this same practice, not as a requirement for worship, but as a pattern for giving, a pattern for giving as an act of worship. But in this instance, Melchizedek, things were very different. For one, in verse 6, tithes were being paid to someone who does not have his descent from the Levites. Melchizedek was not receiving gifts because he forced Abram to do it. He was not receiving gifts because it was a requirement. He was not receiving the gifts because he thought he was going to earn favor with with Abram. He wasn't receiving gifts because he was some great special dude. But he was receiving gifts because he was acting as a priest on God's behalf. On top of that, it was effectively the Levites who were giving the tithes to Melchizedek, he says in verse 9. Because it says... Levi himself, who normally receives tithes, paid tithes through Abram, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. So, in a sense, because he was a descendant from Abram and Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek, in a sense, then it was the Levites who were paying tithes to Melchizedek. And the Melchizedek received the tithes, and then he gave a blessing on behalf of the Most High God. And so we see that his order was higher than the Levitical order. It's why in Psalms 110 verse 4, it says that Jesus is the king who is priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus didn't just have the appearance of being eternal like Melchizedek. He was truly eternal and he was truly greater. And like I said before, what kind of a priest would you you need? What do you want? Do you want a religion where you have a human priest and you have to go to somebody who's actually a sinner and try to hopefully want that person to be a priest for you? To go to an eternal holy God? Don't trust in me and my righteousness to get you anywhere. <laughs> no, 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 no. We need a holy, righteous king of peace, king of righteousness named Jesus. That's what we need. You know, as we end this section, you know, like I said, uh, we're, when I look at this, I'm going to tell you, I'm just amazed about Scripture. Scripture. I'm amazed uh, the reliability of scripture. All of scripture is breathed out by God as useful for teaching. And you look at something like this and see how it's, it's like I call it the scarlet thread that it's tied to Psalms and tied to Genesis. How could you think that one person could come up with all this, right? Without the Holy Spirit guiding the writer, the human writers to write down God's word, how could you even think that this is even manipulated? If a person tried to do this themselves, they would mess it all up. And why would you choose Melchizedek to be an example? Why wouldn't you choose somebody more well known from history? And isn't it amazing that this little story about Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14, like, like I said, it kind of sat dormant until David wrote about it when he was writing about a king who was also a priest, something that would have been totally foreign concept in their minds? And then Hebrews picks this up and, and teaches us about the greatness of Christ that we saw foreshadowed all the way back in the Old Testament. Isn't God's word amazing? Melchizedek was known as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But Melchizedek could never make men righteous or give them peace. He's only a type. He's only a shadow of the real thing. But Jesus, the grand, true, eternal Melchizedek priest and king, he is the one who gives righteousness and gives peace. He is the true king of righteousness and king of peace. That's why it says in 1 John 2.1, Christ is righteousness incarnate. And then Christ grants righteousness. Christ is righteousness, and Christ is the one who gives righteousness. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. You know, we are a lot like those first century Jewish believers. We must see that we are sinners without strength and without hope and without God in this world. And we don't have the answers on our own. And we are not great. And we are not good. But we need a king like a priest of Melchizedek who is better than Melchizedek. We need a king like Jesus. If you think Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and peace, then wait until you see Jesus. And I love, and I just want to end with how Jeremiah pulls these two things together. The prophet Jeremiah as well. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness.